Hey everyone, welcome to Love, Rinse, Repeat, a podcast recorded on Darking Jung land by me, Leah Miller, he, him, his, a minister in the Uniting Church in Australia. Today I have a very special guest, a dear friend. When a dear friend writes a book and, and starts out on interesting projects, you get them on the podcast, you, you, know, you turn your friendship into content, as we, Jed and I were joking before. But I have Jed Evans here joining us on Love, Rinse, Repeat. Jed, welcome along. Thank you for having me. It must be really funny because we've been talking for like 20-something minutes off mic in a very normal way. And then all of a sudden I'm talking to you in a, in high-energy podcast intro voice that, you know, dissipates. Yeah, it's it's kind on. of like Ken Brockman is speaking to me now. <laughs> so for those who don't know Jed, obviously there'll be plenty, plenty watching this who do, but for a lot of you who don't know, uh, Jedediah Evans joined the University of Sydney as an Associate Lecturer in Writing Studies in 2019. He previously held lecturer positions at the University of Wollongong, as well as working across various other teaching roles at University of Sydney, University of Wollongong, and Australian Catholic University. He has published on the work of Southern novelist Thomas Wolfe, which I'm holding up the screen now, Look Abroad, <laughs> Angel, uh, which is out in the University of Georgia Press. You can see that in a paperback coming soon, I'm, I'm told, and uh, has also written on trends in higher education. His current research focus on carceral writing, writing both by and about incarcerated people, and he is involved with correctional facilities in New South Wales, developing collaborative inmate-run writing projects. Uh, Jen, I'm definitely keen to, to talk about that part in a little while, but our broad topic today is, is why read literature, um, which I'm also happy to expand out to, you know, why read fiction, and, you know, I don't want to create, too, you know, I'm sure I'm wading into disciplinary conversations that I know nothing about by even introducing two separate concepts there. But uh, I guess, you know, if we want to talk about reading fiction, reading literature, why it's a good thing. Um, before I am going to ask you that question directly, do you remember the first kind of novel or piece of fiction that you kind of read on your own or, or semi on your own uh, as, you were, as you were growing up? Hmm. You, uh, so you, you flagged this with me before so I could have five seconds to think about it, which was, <laughs> so I, I think obviously the, there are a whole lot of books that you read. Um, both of us have a mutual friend, Matt Stanton, who writes books for children. Mm. And he points out that, you know, books about farting monsters may not be particularly literate, but they are good for teaching us that something can happen inside of this object that is you know, magic and entertaining mm. and exciting and strange. So there are plenty of books like that that I remember, but which maybe don't answer the question correctly. Mm. But I was thinking about uh, The Wind in the Willows, mm. uh, which is the Kenneth Graham novel, early 20th century. And I, I think about that book not because I, I liked talking animals or or because I was particularly attuned to the broader social context, but because... There's something in that book right at the beginning that always overwhelmed me as a young person, which was when um, when the mole is walking. Is it mole or rat? I should I should know this now. When the mole is walking by the river, he he thinks about the river as this great vessel of story. He listens to it, and it's chattering to him. I, I don't know if you remember reading this, and it's chattering to him, and it says that it's. It's telling him the greatest stories and it's carrying it from the kind of centre of the world into the insatiable sea. And that's this kind of beautiful moment. And I remember thinking, even as a young person, maybe I was a very eggheady, you know, slightly dorky, <laughs> literate young person, but I remember thinking, like, what does it mean to be insatiable for story? And I think that, to me, was such a beautiful idea to be kind of like the ocean that's being fed story um mm. yeah so that would be a really early memory and then the rest of it's probably just dinosaurs yeah <laughs> yeah i was thinking trying to think of my own i think like maybe like the red wall um mm. books again like yeah, an animal based uh anthropomorphized animal based story i think i remember those as like, at least books as maybe being read to me but then also kind of transitioning into reading myself or some level of mix but yeah, definitely remember that. Um, and maybe Animals of Farthing Wood being another one. Um, again, the, the, the animal theme, something about it. Um, so I guess what then takes young Jed, re reading something like that, you know, being drawn by this idea of the insatiable 
uh, you know, uh, capacity of story to getting to some point at some point in your life that you're like, hey, maybe not only could I read novels, um, I could I could write and talk about them, and somehow even maybe get paid to do to do such a thing as that, and to help others think about how they would write books. How does that path kind of happen? Um, you know, not you know, in some sense, even not to the point where you are right now, but even just that idea of this is something that's there and something I actually, yeah, that's that's where I see myself going. There's a so again, I was reading, I was reading a lot, and I think you know, I should clarify my my dad was a reader, um, and he would read to us, and I think. I'm working on a project at the moment with a, a friend from Wollongong who writes explicitly about the benefit of reading to children. And she was particularly interested in, in fathers reading to children. Um, but just the idea of like a parent or even a, a figure, right. Reading mm. to children. Um, and so I kind of think that that's in some ways, like that's an, an inherited invisible privilege that we sometimes overlook. Why am I a reader? I'm probably a reader because somebody read to me. Mm. Um, but then that, you know, lots of us are read to and not all of us become academics in, in literature. And so I think that that has to do with friendship more than maybe, I, I yeah, maybe more than people think. And and I, I say friendship very liberally because I, I might even mean friendship with, with literary figures or, or literary characters because there's something about sharing um a love of something that feels to you key and fundamental mm. with somebody else real or imagined, right? And in, and in reality, when you have a friend, one of the first things they say to you is, like, that thing that you love makes sense. Like, I love that thing too. Um, and in a book, when you encounter somebody who, like, loves in the way that you love or thinks in the way that you think, that is a magic moment as well and you go, I didn't realize that I could kind of find this community in an imaginative sense as well. Um, and I think a lot of people get suspicious of that. You know, my uncle used to say to me that he didn't read books. He lived in the real world hmm. as if the danger is that we might get whisked away into the imaginative, but of course, all community is imaginative love anyway. Um, and, and fiction seemed to me and still seems to me to be a way into knowing and loving people and that felt like a worthwhile thing to pursue because I am a very social person, a very relational person. Um, but it just turns out that it, that this strange physical object or maybe now digital also object was a kind of way of mediating my love for others that felt infinitely more rich than I was capable of just in my own head. I needed other people. You know, Emerson talks about hitching your wagon to the stars I needed kind of the work of fiction seemed to get me there more rapidly um, mm -hmm. than I could do myself. Well, thank you for that, Jed. That's a really uh, quite a beautiful answer. That Something that came to mind as you were reading that is there's a great moment in, in the History Boys, um, Alan Bennett's play that got turned into a movie. Um, probably, I was going to say a couple of years back, but probably like you know, 15 now. Um, but... Uh, where uh, the teacher is talking to one of the boys and he kind of has, has this line that the best moments in reading are when you come across something, a thought, a feeling, a way of looking at things that you'd thought special, particular to you. And here it is set down by someone else, a person you never met, maybe even someone long dead. And it is as if a hand has come out and taken yours. Mm. Uh, which I think yeah. touches on that, the, the developing of relationships and, and, and helping to make sense and navigate um, very well. Yeah, yeah, that's lovely, and I and I wonder whether then if Bennett wrote that line, whether he'd read, um, whether he'd read Emerson as well, because that is that's his kind of model for what it looks like to have what well, he calls them um, perfectionist friends, mm. and this idea of somebody who's sort of helping you see the the spheres of self beyond your current perspective, and very often that happens when you see or you read a, a thought that mm. like it belongs to you, but it's articulated in a way that on the one hand, you go, I could say that and I could think that at my very end, the very best tip of my being, <laughs> I could think that clearly and say that beautiful. Mm. And then it kind of calls you up into that, into that space. And there's something, um, you know, I, I, I love Toni Morrison. I don't know, you know, who mm. um, recently died, who I think is, you know, perhaps the, was the greatest living novelist and will certainly be one of the greatest American novelists ever. And 
she has this incredible book, and I, I don't. I think we've spoken about this book in the past, which is The Bluest Eye, which was her first novel. And at the end of that novel, there's this incredible moment. It's not happy. So, you know, for those of you who are, you know, writing this down to read, it's not a happy novel, but it involves this moment which Morrison calls the acquisition of self-knowledge through the serious moral language of goodness. And at the end of the novel, a character knows something that they didn't know before. And what they know is heartbreaking and it's confronting and it's to do with the soil of America in rural Ohio in the 30s and this idea of the soil not um, allowing marigolds to grow, which in this case is not enabling this young black girl to have a sense of of self-identity that incorporates the idea of any kind of beauty or or loveliness. Um, But the narrator of the story knows that. They, They know it by the end. And even though the story ends in this moment of, true sadness and I think a kind of deep heartbreak for America, the fact that the character can know that at the end allows you as the reader to know that in a way that, Mm. you know, you could know it intellectually, but to sort of inhabit that knowing. And I think when we read and you have those moments of inhabiting another um, person, because they are people in, in as much a way as maybe any people we know, to inhabit those perspectives and to have that moment of clarity and understanding can feel, it can feel a whole lot of things. Sometimes it's confronting and destabilizing, but it's always something, you know, it's, mm. uh, if we allow it to be, it's always kind of calling us into a new kind of knowing, um, which is, yeah, I think when you get a taste for it, as, as confronting and as challenging as it can be, it's something that we feel compelled to return to. Mm. Thank you for that. Just as a side note, I actually do think that scene they're actually talking about Emerson. I think that, which, which would make sense. I think that's, um, uh, if I remember right, but it has been a little while since I've seen it. Um, thank you for that. I think, so we've already kind of, I mean, like, you've already you've been listening to this. You've already got a bunch of good reasons of why to read fiction, why to, why to read literature. But, um, and, and by the way, I'm using read in a capacious term here to obviously imply the, the, the listening to audiobooks. And maybe we'll come to maybe some more specific, you know, thoughts and differences there but, but just to flag that I'm far be it for me a podcaster to, to any way besmirch or denigrate the, the act of listening to something uh, as a great way to to experience uh, art but um but I guess I guess why you know let's go a bit more explicit to this why read fiction because I could make an argument potentially and I'm sure you're not saying you know it has to be a one or only here, but you know, this, a lot of this experience could also come from, from film and TV, um, from music uh, and other art forms without, you know, trying to create like a, a hierarchy here or trying to create a either or, is there a, any particular reason why I guess you've, you know, cause I know you love film as well, but why you've remained drawn to, to books, to fiction and literature um, as, as, as the fuel for this journey kind of thing or the, the space to take this, this long walk. Yeah. I always get, I think I often get annoyed when I hear other academics in my field answer a question like this <laughs> because I, I, not because I think it's a bad question, but because I think often we feel like we can't say very straightforward things. For instance, like I, I love reading and that that's, adequate reason for for many many people Ooh. and has been reason enough uh, and, and so something like love is never should never i think be be undermined or kind of I, I should foreground that one of the reasons that i think other people should do it is because you know in that um that tom stoppard uh the play rosencrantz and guildenstern are dead there's that moment where he's talking about the experience of wonder and he's talking about the a, a person seeing a unicorn. I don't know if you remember this moment. And what happened, he, he describes a person who sees a unicorn and says that they experience wonder at a particular kind of scale, the individual scale, right? So what it's like to see something truly wondrous, a marvel. And then another person comes into the frame and that wonder is amplified through the sharing of that mm, vision. Mm. Um, but then he has this kind of, I think, somewhat cynical but maybe honest appraisal of what happens when more and more people see the unicorn. And he says that the wonder gets stretched as thin as reality until somebody says, look, there's a horse with an arrow stuck in its head, um, <laughs> which is, you know, appropriate for the play. 
But there is something to be said about that that moment where there is a thing that you love that you you need to share in order to kind of see it reflected in another person's love mm. for that same thing. Mm. And so that all of us, all of us um, poor desperate folk who love to read are terrible because we're we're almost inevitably evangelists <laughs> <laughs> because we need other people mm. to to see and to know. And when you and when you find someone who doesn't get it or doesn't understand it or doesn't reckon with it in the way that you do, it can feel like that moment of the kind of the wonder getting stretched a bit thin. Um, mm. and, and so I think a simple answer, which it was probably a little complexly <laughs> expressed, is simply that I happen to be of the kind of person who finds in fiction something to love. Um, mm. And that would be the first reason why I would say mm. we should read. Um, and there are, I, there are, I think, other serious reasons for it as well. When I, when I talk to my students, one of the things that you don't realise when you become a student at university is that you have to read. And if you're studying literature, you have to read fiction. Mm. Um, mm. And you'd think that people would get that, right? <laughs> you'd think that that would be an assumption, but often it's a real surprise. Um, and that that moment is there is a kind of labor involved in reading that isn't involved in any I don't think is involved in any other form of appreciation of art other than maybe that some art requires a kind of backlog of energy expended to really kind of appreciate it yes um whereas I think often fiction sort of teaches you how to appreciate it in the act of reading and that's the hard part right it's kind of setting all of the rules for you and then if you're willing to endure with it you then you get it will give you a payoff of sorts um but that that labor and that expending of energy is worthwhile as well um Simone Weil has this great I guess you'd call it an essay it's a letter uh, and it's about education and she's describing why geometry matters as a mode of attention as opposed to as geometry and there's something about reading that is simply to my mind about the practice which is almost a spiritual practice of attention um and of of doing something of laboring to um to notice and that that's a posture and a way of being in the world that is a bit eccentric right mm. considering our current moment um and it seems in a way to be working against other controlling narratives that is worthy. I have other reasons as well, but, you know, those are, those are at yeah. least two. There's on the one hand because I love reading and then, on the, and then on the other hand because there is this attentiveness that is bred in a person, particularly in this interior imaginative world where you're doing the kind of labour of inhabiting and creating the world at the same time mm. that fiction allows us to do. Um, and particularly a kind of fiction that you might call literature, but I, I'm with you on not wanting to stampede into that argument anytime soon. <laughs> no, that, that's really helpful, I think. And I think the love matters. It's like, you know, like because, like, you, you know, if you do want, if you want to recommend someone a film, you know, if, if you miss space, they maybe waste 90 to two and a half hours of their life, depending on, on the movie you've recommended. But it's not this huge waste. And, you know, they can also stop it early. Same as like, hey, do you want to listen? I, I like this song and you play it. And, like we've all had the disheartening moment where you can tell someone is just not paying attention and their eyes are drifting back to their phone. Um, but, again, that's that's three minutes. But to, to pass someone a book and say, look, I think this <laughs> this changed my life, this affected me, this was hilarious, this was so touching, you know, it's you're really asking someone for, for a great deal of, of, of effort. And so I can, I can and, and that's, that's asking the reader a specific thing, let alone, Hey, just join me in this world of, of broad fiction. But like, I think when you say it comes out of that love and it's like, then kind of the question can be like, look, all I'll ask is the try. And if you happen to find love in doing it, then great. But um, yes, there's, there's certainly a, you know, a gentleness that needs to be presented there. I, I think I posted the other day cause I, I finished um, reading infinite jest um, which I was very, very proud of myself for doing. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sitting behind Jen. Um, and like, and I think it's brilliant, right? And it, it's, it's so, and there's a lot of reasons why, but it's like, when I, when I shared it, I'm like, look, like no one has to read any book. And, and I think particularly like sometimes we feel like, oh, I have to read Crime and Punishment and, 
um, and Infinite Jest and Moby Dick and whatever other you know canonical books written by men you know in order to feel like I've achieved something. He's like, no, you don't. There's no book you have to read, but this is when I actually think you know there's a reason that people like it and I liked it and it's open to you now as I'm going to share this experience, but without thinking that, you know, you're kind of saying that somehow you'll be less um, of a developed human than I, if you do not put in the time it takes to, to read this, because it might just not jive with you at all. And in that case, there's a better thing for you to read. Uh, you know what? It's so interesting that that book in particular, I read that book because a friend of mine wrote a book about David Foster Wallace right. who's the the novelist, and and so I felt this compulsion to read it because this friend who I whom I love was was writing this book, and I I think I got through seven hundred pages and then I I, I collapsed like so many people um, before the finish line, and then I felt this huge amount of shame right mm. that I you know and lost labor as well I have friends mm. that would never give up so late into a book you know you had some sort of obligation to move on and to push on and mm. um you know and but what it, I think what it, it reveals a whole lot of things number one it reveals this idea that recommendation right Re- recommendation is is this very specific kind of intervention where you go, somebody's life needs this. And it has a whole lot of assumptions set into it, right? Um, whereas I think there's a way of recommending like what you're describing, which is just it much more open-handed and generous, right? And and it just, it, there's, no, there's, there's no loss if somebody doesn't like it. I mean, sometimes I feel a pang when a person who I feel sees the world like I see it doesn't like a book that I like and there's, there's this weird dis, you know, disjointedness where I think, but you sh- you're the kind of person who should. <laughs> um, but then there's also just that, the very, the reality, the kind of temporal reality of fiction, which is, sure, read Moby Dick, but it may well be that you read Moby Dick when you are 80 years old, or it might well be that you read Infinite Jest eight times before you read infinite jest which is very it's a kind of that's a typical story of that Mm, book right mm. that it started often and then stopped and then started again Mm. and it turns out that some books call to us in very specific moments of our lives and that they're not always open to us right in Mm. in in a way that all good things have a a sense of opening one door and, and shutting another right to say yes to that book is to say no to the other books that you could read in that mm. same period of time. And we get that wrong sometimes. We start a book and then we think, this is not for now. And I think that's been a better way for me to, th- to think about mm. fiction, particularly that fiction that I, I feel as though one day I may well read, where I go, oh, I think I've got this wrong. I've kind of intervened at the wrong moment in my life. And that's okay. And it may well turn out that I, I put it off and put it off until I can no longer get to it. And that's fine, you mm. know. I'm very comfortable with that possibility in the same way that I do that with film. Mm. Um, and sometimes you have that moment where you think, what a fool I was for waiting this long. <laughs> uh, you know, what I could have known or what. But mm. it may well turn out that had you read it in the time that you thought you ought to have, so much of your own life just wouldn't have happened yet and you wouldn't have been able to know how good it was, right? Uh, and, and that's all a bit of a mystery. Uh, and it's one of the reasons, again, for, for rereading as well, right? Because it turns yes. out that that we change and books change along with us. Um, uh, yeah. I think that's really helpful. I think can also help challenge, again, some of those other reasons that we can find ourselves reading. Like I know I'm this kind of completionist and, and like to have read Things So like sometimes you can feel like almost like I'm trying to get through this because it's a chore because I want to be, a, I, I've, I've sunk this many hours in, so I have to finish it so I can put it on my little notepad where I write everything I've read and put it because I can't put it there if I stop 20 pages short or 100 pages. I have to finish it, otherwise it can't be there. Um, but either that can lead you into exactly staying with a book that's not for, not for now or not enjoying it because you're thinking about the next thing you want to read. Um, and then there's also the thing of getting caught up in, so like, okay, I'm really enjoying this book I'm reading now and I think I know what I'm going to read next. But, oh, now I saw um, whoever t- like listed out there, you know, oh, the Booker Long List came out or some um, New New Yorker, here were the books we read this year. And now, or, you know, in three different points, I hear someone talk 
about reading, you know, Ocean Vong's On Earth for Briefly Gorgeous. But I have to read that. Everyone's talking about it. I'm going to be out of this conversation. And by the time I read it, no one want to talk about it anymore. You know, and, and, and there's always this thing. And, and I think a lot of that gets in the way of what you're saying of trying to actually just be in and allow it to experience and watch. And I think sometimes we have to free ourselves from, you know, the expectations of what we should read or when we should or, or in, what, in what way. Absolutely. I, you know, it's funny that you say that. I am a bad academic in that I am not <laughs> present on Twitter. I have a Twitter account that I think I've posted maybe 10 times in my life <laughs> and I don't check it ever. Mm. And that's no slight on, on people who do check Twitter and who are active on Twitter. I see it as a kind of um, a, some sort of Sisyphean labor for me that other people have just managed to push the rock over the top <laughs> and, then, and then everything works for them. But to not know as much, to not be in as many conversations, mm. um, to not kind of know what I'm missing, it has been, uh, I think, at least in my experience, very liberating when it comes to the books that I choose to read. Um, because if I, which is, again, not to say that I don't look at a list or I don't, you mm. know, there are times when you think, you know, what is a, what's a good book about this or what's a good yeah. book about this or somebody recommends a book because they saw it on someone's Twitter feed and that's just the natural e ecosystem of how reading works. But I don't feel that same pressure, which is strange because I should because I'm meant to be the guy that knows all the things about all the books but as it turns out, there are a lot of books that have been written um, and <laughs> most of them have been written before now. Most books aren't contemporary novels. Um, and there's that kind of that part of me, maybe it's the, uh, the curmudgeonly part of me that goes, I want to give these other books the time that they deserve, um, that they haven't passed, that they haven't mm. just been extinguished by the kind of progress of the new thing of the new Booker winner of the new Pulitzer winner. Um, and it means that sometimes I have awkward conversations with people where they say, you know, you've got the book on your shelf. Why haven't you read it? Or, or they say, you know, surely you would have read this. This is, you know, surely you would have read Jack because I love Marilyn Robinson. And they say, that's the new book. You've read the new book. And I say, well, I haven't, I haven't. I want to read all the old ones again before I read the new one. And, you know, I have other things happening. Um, <laughs> and, that's, and that's not to say, but then I have that weird power of being an academic and saying, well, I can make that claim. I can say, well, I've read other more important books and that's what I'm doing. But in reality, I, I feel like it's just almost a kind of happenstance. You pick up a book and it catches your imagination and that's uh -huh. the book that you read, be it a, you know, mid-century science fiction novel or be it the most recent book by a, a Booker Prize winner. Uh -huh. The only caveat I would offer to that is I had this, this moment in my life where I got a little bit manic about cataloging all my books and I scanned every single one. This was, you know, thousands of books at the time. And I scanned every single one and you could do this horrifying feature which showed you all of the images of the authors that you had accumulated in your collection in just one big, you know, one big screen's worth. And mm. just as you're scrolling through all these, you know, angry looking, very serious white dudes <laughs> and thinking to myself, like that's, that's a kind of check on mm. the, the part of me that goes, I just want to be able to read whatever I want, whenever I want. And to have that moment, that kind of conscience moment of going, be mindful that what you read is also a kind of inherited set of preferences. And some of those preferences are embedded in programs, particularly can canonical programs mm. that are from a moment in history, which, did not listen to voices. And we're in a moment now where we're better at listening to those voices. And so in some ways, reading contemporary fiction is a kind of reparative, you know, work mm. of trying to get away from some of the quote unquote great books, um, which may not be that great. Totally. I think that's a, that's a great point. And there, and there is something that you can feel a freedom to go, oh yeah, I'm only going to read books. Or mostly 89% of the books I'm going to read are going to come out post year 2000. Um, from a, a wide, diverse array of, of writers. And that's fine. That's no less a life spent in literature than, um, you know, devoting it to 800-page to Russian novels or, or mid-20th century stuff as well. Like, I think that... And I think sometimes, you know, you can make... I think that's also the thing of sometimes when you're in a long book, 
Um, like, and I think that's the reason to read a long book, right? Is because you actually have to spend a lot of time in it and you can maybe break up some of that. I'm going to list off things. But at the same time, like, there were definitely times toward the end of Infinite Jest, I'm like, I could have read <laughs> 12 books, maybe more, right? Of, of 180 to 250 page kind of with much wider type setting and actual chapters. Like, you know, I could have really... <laughs> put a lot more, but, and there's good and bad, right? There's good in the sense of it actually broke up this desire just to fill a page of things I had read, but also I can understand the idea of you actually would have heard a lot more voices in, in that other path too. So yeah, again, it's yeah. kids an adventure. The, yeah. You know what? I wonder if uh, there's a, a great writer called Mark Greif um, or grief, but it's E I F. So I don't know how to pronounce it. Uh, which is a great, that's one of the great anxieties of all academics is not knowing <laughs> how to pronounce the names of people that they read. Um, like the, the novelist who wrote Americana, I don't even try and say her name because mm. I cannot. Um, but uh, this essay by Mark Greif where he's talking about uh, why exercise is part of this particular kind of mechanism of, of neoliberal capital. And it's wonderful because it justifies for those of us who are slovenly why we should be suspicious of exercise. But one of the things that he talks about is the impulse that we have of kind of segmenting and measuring um, physical prowess or exertion or energy. And it becomes this thing that you can count, that you can you can mm. see it on your wrist or you can measure it in your heartbeat. And we have ways of kind of making our own natural biological processes purely mechanical to the point of abstraction. And we do that with all, all aspects of life, right? And we can do that with something which like fiction, which is insane to me, this thing that is meant to kind of break you out of that mm. becomes a a, a, an, a work of trying to accumulate and account for and measure, I have read this and I've read this and I've read this and I read them in this time. Or you can get apps that let you read truncated versions of books in you know, 45 minutes. And if you're a, if you're a business leader, you can have read all the great business manuals in, in two days. And, and, and I understand the reality of time. Like, don't get me wrong. I, I am somebody who has the great, um, huge benefit of being able to say that reading is work. Um, and most people can't say that, mm -hmm. but there's, there's a difference between making time for something and making kind of reading work for you, mm. um, within these, very measured, um, accountable segments. And that to me feels like a thing other than reading. It's like watching only TikTok videos and thinking that you're kind of, you're, you're interested in, in film. Mm. You know, you're, you're not interested in film. You're interested in something, but it's a different thing in kind. And it is interesting. I do wonder what happens with reading fiction if we keep moving toward this kind of parceling and segmenting and measuring that we have, um, because, you know, modern life doesn't give us much space. The, mm. the Russians wrote long novels because they had long winters, you know, they, just, <laughs> they, they couldn't go outside. Um, mm. but we, we can't, we can't stay inside even when we are inside. Mm. Um, yeah. Mm. That's really helpful. I think, yeah. I think also sometimes it's like, you know, with the what is the right time for a book is, you know, very much about that, you know, what, how do you make the time to read? And some books are more conducive to, you know, I have long, I'm going to have over a holiday or over whatever's happening, I'm going to be able to put in some real hours and some books are like, I'm going to be fitting this in. Like, you know, I, I read one book, which I really loved which was, um, last year, which is um, Dominicana by Angie Cruz. And one of the reasons I really loved it is basically every chapter was three pages long. It was like these very short chapters. And I would, we had just had a baby and we had our three-year-old and that was a thing I could always know like, okay, I can finish our chapter, if not four or five, and I'll have a very distinct place to put the bookmark in compared to something with much longer ranging. We're like, wait, where were we last time I was reading? Even if that was only 25 minutes ago, <laughs> like, or, or two hours or two days, you know, and you're trying to pick that up or something like this, which is a bit more had a different kind of rhythm and flow to it, just fit that time and still allowed me to have that, you know, journey into a new world, into the lives of others, to you know, build those relationships and being touched and rescued <laughs> and all the things that were happening there. But, you know, you know and it just fit that moment. Um, and it could fit other moments too. But for me in that time, that was the, the right one. And, um, and, and sometimes, yes, yeah, so sometimes like that with the, the question of like what to read and when, it's like sometimes it can be a very 
um, decision based on just you know where you are in that very right moment. That's a, that would be a marvelous recommendation, right? Like that that mm. feels like a you know a book for for new parents, not, <laughs> yeah. not because it's a book about parenting, but because it's a yes. book that makes sense within the confines of that time. And I say this with the the imminent approach of a child in in mm. my own life, and I am I'm yeah I'm mindful that I might look back at this interview and think, oh, you know, you, you, you thought you could read still. <laughs> what a fool. Yeah. Let's, let's shift gears a little bit. Uh, let's talk about your current project on, on carceral writing. Uh, as you said, so you, you're, you're in the, in the intro, we talked about writing, uh, about both writing both by and about incarcerated people. And I guess the connected work in, in the prisons currently, just talk to us a little bit about what you're doing why, how it came about, is there anything you want to launch into here? Like, I, I know a little bit about it from, from our own chats, but I'm sure folks will be very interested. Yeah, I mean, this is a funny forum to talk about this because I know that you've had guests recently talking about criminal justice and talking about um, mass incarceration. Mm. And, and so in, in some ways, if, if folks listen to this, then they know more than most people um, because <laughs> I would say most people are ambivalent at best about what happens inside our corrective services mm. you know mm. we increasingly i think we we know more about elements of it so we know about for instance deaths in custody we know about overrepresentation of indigenous people we know a little bit more about youth justice now following the dondale mm. um four corners and so we've had all of these reviews and and, and state reports and so there is a sense in which we're we're widening, you know, very gently the the window into what a prison is and what it does. But I think still, almost without fail, if you were to say to somebody, "What is a prison?" or "What what what happens in a prison?" what's what's the daily rhythms of a prison? What is the purpose of a prison? Now, most people would have a, a ready-made answer, but the answer would be a genre answer. It would be, this is what I've seen in this documentary or probably more likely this is what I saw in Orange is the New Black or Wentworth or, you know, yeah. these are the things that I have seen on TV or probably even more commonly, you know, uh, well, no one watches Prison Break anymore, but, you know, it's it's that kind of, we have a, a ready-made stock of metaphors for what confinement is but almost all of them are imaginary. Mm. And I wonder whether there is a, a place in culture where we have, on the one hand, such a deep, familiar set of images and metaphors for what it is and where a huge proportion of us, with the exception, I would say, of our Aboriginal population by virtue of overrepresentation and thus much more familiarity within family, but the majority of us having very little experience or knowledge or understanding of that place. So we have this kind of strange reality, right? The paradox of, of knowing too much. There's that eggheady word overdetermined, right? That the prison is a place that we kind of know so much about that we don't need to think about it anymore. Hmm. And yet very few of us will ever enter into one. And so for me, I, I was basically having a crisis of faith in academia and thinking to myself, on um, you know what am i doing what is the point of talking elegantly about something to a group of people for whom this is available and open to them and we get to we get to have lovely conversations about warm and interesting things and sometimes we talk about issues of injustice or or racial inequality or or whatever it might be but we're talking about it in in that same way in a kind of like their metaphors, right, rather mm. than their real things. And I, I got to a point where I thought I need, to, I need to have this interest that I have align with something that has a tangible reality attached to it. Why I chose criminal justice, why I chose prisons, it remains a mystery to me. And it was a foolish choice in some ways because it's taken me five years from the inception of the idea to convince a prison to let me come in. Um, mm. I don't know how, how much you know about programs that run inside of corrective services in Australia, but there's been a significant depletion in the, in, since about 2016 when we had a, a 
a government initiative, which was the Making Prisons Better initiative, which pulled a lot of that kind of stuff out of it and focused much more on what we call criminogenic behavior. So it was less interested in what we might do to encourage desistance, to encourage people to think of themselves as individual souls that might have opportunities beyond the prison, and instead to think of them as kind of um, subjects or as kind of sufferers of particular behavioral traits that mm. could be mended through intervention, um, usually behavioral therapy, but even you know some more unsettling kinds of ways of intervening. And so we went, what we need to do is we need to think about the prisoner as a thing that is knowable and known, and we can fix that thing. Um, when, of course, what fiction teaches us all the time is that, you know, a, a prisoner like anyone else is like the equator. It's, you know, it doesn't exist when you go there. Mm. Turns out that it can be any of us. Um, and so I got involved in thinking about what, the carceral space was, be it prisons or, or detention camps or, or what have you, what that was and how reading about that, but also how reading things produced within that space might bridge the gap between the kind of social understanding of what it is compared to the reality of what it actually is. Because as it turns out, the function of a prison versus what we think a prison does and the 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 prisoner as an idea versus who a prison actually a prisoner actually is mm. are very different things. Mm. They are perhaps as different as anything could be. And that I think that matters, right? I think as yeah. a kind of even intellectually that matters, but I think beyond the intellectual curiosity, it became something that felt fundamentally wrong. And maybe reading helped me know that in some way. You know, that mm. reading teaches you, if anything, not to underestimate people. Um, not to sort of presume that that A leads to B in the life trajectory of a person. Um, yeah, so that's where I'm up to now. I can talk more about what we're doing, but I think, yeah, th as, as with all huge life decisions, at least for me, there's an aura of mystery about how I landed on something, but I'm very grateful that I'm here. I think that's really important. I think just just to your point, like I just just to plug the like last week's episode for when this comes out, which came out today in terms of when we're speaking. But if you're listening to this, last week's episode with Robin Oxley, we talk about abolition and think we you know we discuss you know the, the fact that the purported reason for existence of prisons, you know, name, well, you know when there's a few there out there of rehabilitation and protection that just to do not achieve what we actually think they're achieving. And again, to your point, most of the people who are in prison are not the kind of people we think of when we think of who's in prison, um, vast, vast majority. So I think that's, that's really important. So I guess what's, so what's the, what's the, what's the hopeful outcome or aim or where does it, where does it lead to, right? You know, the, 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 this, what you're saying, it seems like there's a couple of different things happening both in terms of, yeah. So what's your, you know, either do you have a fixed thing or is it still like we're seeing where it goes and what emerges as we build relationships? What's, yeah, well, so definitely we are at the, the kind of coalface of it now. It is just beginning. Um, I there's a few there's a few things, and you know, I I'd love I'd love your your thoughts about it as well, and what what you think makes sense to somebody who um, hasn't been living inside of my head for the last five <laughs> years. But on, on the one hand, there's a a more cerebral intellectual exercise in all of this, which is for me to say what would it mean for any person in Australia to have more ready access to written testimony, fictional or not, from within mm. carceral spaces? So there's a kind of very practical component where the, for me I'm, I'm working on collecting, be it Pre already published or newly written work by people who have been incarcerated and not just novelists and writers. So mm. obviously we have, you know, people like Beiriz Buchani, of course, who's writing from Manus Island, which yeah. he, he names as a, as a prison. He doesn't call it the processing centre. He calls it a prison. Um, so we have in recent history, a very rich um, written testimony of, of what's going on within the Australian carceral regime. But we were imagined as a, you know, by in terms of the a non-Indigenous imaginary, Australia was thought of as a prison space. Mm. Before it was visited, before it was recognised or known, it was 
um, thought of and accounted for as a place to kind of get rid of people who were too difficult to deal with within other criminal contexts, um, which is, you know, of course, because it's difficult to deal with these people who you perceive as in some way out of sync with your culture. What do you do with them? And so when we when we have this, the, the colonial invasion of Australia is construed as thinking of this space as a, a kind of holding cage for the unwanted, the kind of the criminal man. Mm. And so we have a, a, this history that runs alongside other histories that thinks of the very place that we live now in terms of carceral spaces. Mm. And, of course, then we have the over-representation of Indigenous people within their own space, within their own land, um, in these new spaces, these newly created spaces. And so for me, trying to track what what kinds of uh, imaginative work, and I'm, I'm narrowing it at least for now to writing, um, has been produced by people who have found themselves in this land um, under different carceral regimes, mm. strikes me as as at least, if not just kind of intellectually interesting, hopefully as a way of rounding out a more honest accounting of what Australian prisons actually are and have been. And as it turns out, we have a history of reform just as much as we have a history of oppression. Um, the oppressive history is is more pronounced, I should add. But then there's the, the other... And to my mind, uh, potentially the one that lasts and maybe lasts for as long as I do this, I don't know, um, which is if I believe in in reading and writing as a, as a tool um, not only for self-expression but maybe even as a way towards something like freedom, um, whether, whether that be freedom of mind or freedom of body, what, what am I doing if I'm not involving myself in the lives of those people who are themselves incarcerated and showing them what this thing can do um, or better yet, giving them tools and then letting them discover what that thing can do. And so I'm partnering at the moment with um, a correctional centre. I'm wondering whether I should, I might, I may not name them That's right. yep. in the context of the podcast, <laughs> but I'm partnering with a correctional centre um, and we're working on writing workshops. Uh, mm. So we're focusing initially on, on certain forms of writing, so, you know, professional writing, as in writing for CVs and doing emails and doing that, that's sort of thinking of writing as a skill. Mm. But this thing that we often construe as ancillary to what, what writing is, which is, oh, it helps you know yourself and it, and it allows you to communicate to others outside of yourself and allows you to imagine yourself into the lives of other people and et cetera, et cetera. Those things are so much more primary than a skill. Mm. Um, and I, I teach writing at university and I always tell my students to write to me, not to write, but to write to someone. Because mm. writing is communicative. Writing is about bridging the gap between self and other. Writing is about imagining what another person might read, right? Yeah. What, what might they see or know or read? And so we're doing some stuff like that with, with some of the inmates, things like writing for family. What would mm. it mean for an incarcerated person to write for a, a child for, that they might see sometimes but from whom they are currently separated? What would it look like to write, um, to write family history or to write about their current experience? Um, what would it look like to report on the lived experience of, of being incarcerated mm. and have that circulated to people within the, the centre itself? This happens in America, I should add. There's a lot of really wonderful programs in America, a lot of writing workshops that have had wildly positive results, which, as it turns out, have not been about making a bunch of professional writers when they leave prison, mm. but about changing culture and changing a sense of connection, um, hope, and understanding of being able to imagine yourself outside of the confines of the prison. Mm. So those are the two projects. Mm. One, which is, I guess you could call kind of academic, in that it's about accounting for a longer story of incarceration in Australia and then one which is maybe I would hope that it's something like um, it's engaged and it's mm. and it's trying to do maybe the work of, of justice mm. giving people an opportunity to to write and and one thing that I should add and, and I don't know if you guys covered this at all in, in the previous interview but when one of the things that 
we need in correctional centres is the possibility of a world outside of it coming in, intervening into the space. Um, one of the most clear and obvious objective changes to outcomes in recidivism or desistance behaviour, so reoffending, which is a bad metric, but it's what we have. Um, one of the biggest factors in that is where there are communities outside of the prison um, that are interested in the lives of those um, contained within. Not programs that are run by custodial staff as important mm -hmm. as they are, not um, interventions run by the state as important as that is, but the idea that there are just people who are outside, who are reading the things that you write, mm. who are coming in and meeting with you, who are telling your story on the outside. I mean, we've seen some podcasts come up, you know, obviously Ear Hustle is one of the most well-known, um, but what it looks like to tell the stories of people who are incarcerated, it's not about excusing um, criminal behaviour, it's about remembering that all of us are more than the worst thing that we've done. Mm. Mm. Thank you for that, Jen. I think that that's really important. I think that came up, we talked a bit about that in an early episode with... Um, abolition apostles group and, and they're their huge letter writing work that they do which just you know helps people feel like you know they have a connection and have a person to write to and who hears from them and 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 they can you know hear about their lives and, and that and i think that's just very important i think because so much of the problems you know you know we talked about this last week of you know prisons just geographically we just put them far away <laughs> so that we don't have to see them or think about them but that makes it then very prohibitive for a lot of people including loved ones you know to to go and visit and i think you know that, that idea of being forgotten or discarded by by society is 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 so damaging and so i think that's that's really important what you're talking yeah. about there yeah and you wonder why san quentin for instance has such wildly successful programs, just look at where it is. Mm. Just purely geographically, it is a place where people live. It's a place that people pass. Mm. And it used to be that we put prisons in places that people saw. There were, there were prisons on major roads in the middle of New York where people could reach the hands of inmates who would reach out through the bars. Mm. You know, Dorothy Day, the, the, you know, the Catholic activist who was imprisoned for the first time in her early 20s for um, a... a I think it was it was activism against um, the nuclear use mm -hmm. of nuclear weapons. She she talks about you know hearing the voices of people as they walked past you know on the street mm -hmm. and and women calling out from this prison, and that might strike people as confronting you know, but that tells us something about the choice that we make. Mm -hmm. What does it mean to to want to discard people not just to places where they lose their capacity for making choice, but to places where we no longer have to bear them in mind. Mm. Um, yet another reason to read, because when I, I'm reading a book by Rachel Kushner at the moment, which is called The Mars Room, I think it was maybe a 2018 novel. Um, she's a great American novelist and probably more famous for the flamethrowers, but she's written this book and her main character is, a, is someone who's um, on her way to being put into prison and she's telling her story and it's this terribly sad story, um, you know, working in all sorts of dive bars and working in sex work and doing, um, you know, living this, this life that is familiar to us and we know exists but we don't often have to empathise or think about mm. or engage with. Mm. And the kind of the bold-faced reality of it so readily lived and expressed in a novel is is kind of, it's not the same as, but it's, it's tantamount to walking past on the street, right? Mm. There's something about that immediacy um, where you, you can't not know that that happens. Mm. And in knowing that that happens, um, there is then that kind of that impetus. Um, the, we are morally obligated, um, I would say, I would argue at least, to, to think about what we think about that. Mm. Um, and that's an uncomfortable reality for mm. probably all of us, myself included. Mm. Thank you for that, Jed. That's I right. well. Hopefully, down the line, we can we'll talk again more about uh, all this as it, as it continues to grow and expand yeah. and deepen. Um, as we you know move towards closing, let's talk a little bit about Look Abroad, Angel, which which I know like you often speak of as as something that's so far ago and so in your past that that is uh, you know gone and gone. But you know, I did get given a review copy, so I'm going to make good by talking about it on the uh, on the podcast. Uh, so I guess this is about Thomas Wolfe and the geographies of longing. 
I guess, you know, we've talked about why read literature uh, do you, or why read fiction. Do you want to give a, a pitch for why read Thomas Wolfe? <laughs> <laughs> Don't read Thomas Wolfe. No, no, no. Uh, so, the, you know, those who just listen and don't watch will not see, won't see that cover yeah. image. But the cover image of the book is, I think, in some ways a, a lovely summation of what reading is and does. So in the cover image, it's this very garish image that I found from a pulp science fiction novel from the early 50s. And it's a picture of Thomas Wolfe. And then behind him, the sky is emblazoned with the the path of a rocket ship, which is heading to Mars. And Wolfe is kind of superimposed over the moon, as you can see there. Now, that is from a story by Ray Bradbury. And Ray Bradbury, as if you don't know who Ray Bradbury is, um, this is one of those moments where an academic will be like, you ought to know who that is. But, you know, Ray Bradbury, who's famous for the Martian Chronicles and the Illustrated Man and probably most famously Fahrenheit 451, he, as a young man, used to cut out literal sections of Thomas Wolfe's first novel, which is called Look Homeward Angel, hence the title of my book. And it was a novel written in 1929 in Asheville, North Carolina, and it's about a young boy who leaves the South and goes to New York and then goes abroad. And Ray Bradbury reading this and feeling for him the romance of what it meant to kind of leave the parochial space and head off for the romantic other place. He would try and just trim these passages into his own story writing, feeling that he was inadequate and he needed Wolf to kind of be his interlocutor. And so when he finally writes a story about Mars, he sends Thomas Wolfe as a character to Mars. He literally writes Thomas Wolfe into his story and he gets him to write the great Martian romance. Uh, it's a weird story. It's got a wonderful um, tacky pic picture, which is why I included it in the book. But it, it's, it's showing what a novel did for a person, right? Mm. It's going, I cannot comprehend doing the work that I'm going to do but this book is giving me the possibility of it um, and he reads this and he's enchanted by it and then he he himself as it turns out in a kind of beautiful turn of events ends up writing the great Martian romance which is the Martian chronicles and of course that book is given a very specific particular award by NASA engineers who start the space program um, in part because of the experience of reading early Ray Bradbury mm. stories, mm. believing the romance of space travel before they could see the reality or practicality of it. And so Wolf is worth reading in as much as he is this figure of deep yearning and longing for a lot of Americans, even as recently as Ozark, the, you know, the Netflix TV mm. series. Mm. Yeah. There's an episode, I think it's in season two, where um, one of the characters whose name I'm going to forget now, but that's okay, um, but where there's a first edition of Thomas Wolfe's Look Homeward Angel and the TV show treats it as this kind of object of, of romance mm. and, the, and the character, you know, it sort of reveals his artistic um, <laughs> side. He's otherwise this kind of white trash kid apparently, but this book and the, his love for it is this suggestion that maybe there's more to him. Mm. Um, I, you know, Abe Books said that there was a massive spike of purchases of Look Home with Angel, which there hadn't been for about a hundred years um, after the screening of this after the mm. screening of this TV wow. show, which just goes to show the way that we often think about objects of art, not necessarily in their specifics, right, in terms mm. of page one through to page six hundred but in what they inspire in other people. Um, mm. You know, it would amaze you if I told you that, you know, Thomas Wolfe's books were read out loud on CBS radio to sell war bonds when America was struggling to make enough money to send, you know, troops to war. They read these mm. passages out of his book because they believed that they showed people about the beauty and the romance of America and the, the need to save it. His books were read in, in the Dachau concentration camp during the Second World War, where a writer said of that book that sometimes a book is better than liberty, you know? And his, so the ways that his book is read strikes me as kind of 
um, as just one example of the ways that very often we read fiction, which mm. is not so much for um, what it kind of teaches us in terms of knowledge, but what it makes us feel and believe is possible. So that, yeah, that book was fascinating. And, and weirdly, it feels quite prescient mm. um, because of Wolf was loved by Germans during the Second World War and by a very specific kind of white Southern nationalist. And he was writing what were called like folk plays that were directly derived from the idea of the Volk um, in mm. Nazi Germany, the people. And there was all of these strange um, similarities between the rising nationalism of, of Southern America during the interwar period and what would become the National Socialist Party in Germany. Mm. And, and in that same space, fiction was doing work. It was teaching people about their connection to soil, right, and to land and giving them a sense of national identity. You know, books are not without their kind of dangers, of course. Mm. Like, mm. you know, we've been talking about them as purely kind of morally <laughs> neutral objects, but they're, they're not at all. And so, yeah, that, I, that book in some ways, as in the book that I wrote, was more about thinking about what books did and achieved um, and what they were as kind of physical mm. objects. Um, maybe more than it's about why you should read Thomas <laughs> you know, there, And there are, there are a few of his. He writes long books, my, my word. The Time in the River is about 900 pages and it's all romance. Somebody <laughs> described it as turning on the tap marked purple, this idea of purple prose. <laughs> Um, you know, he writes everything. He leaves nothing out. Um, so, yeah, I wouldn't necessarily make people endure that. Mm. And it's complicated, right? Because yeah. he died before before 1939. He didn't get to account for his sins or to kind of um, maybe repent of mm. some of his postures. And so we forget people like him and we discard them and put them away. And in doing so, we forget the dangers um, as well as the possibilities mm. of what fiction is and can be, you know, and we're living in a time of, of very compelling fictions and it would serve us well to be the kinds of people who knew how to read them and knew their origins mm. um, yeah, as much as we're living in a time of very great narrative writing as well and it would serve us well to, to stop and read some of those as well. What a great spot to end. That was, that was wonderful. Because I, I was going to ask about the, um, you know, the prescience of this because a part of what you do in the book is saying that, like, it's, you're, you know, less about that yearning and longing for the American South and more about just a general, you know, more, more larger yearning and longing. And I think, you know, that could probably be good, in this, as I say, in this time of people, you know, yearn and long for a particular kind of America. So if people are, you know, interested in exploring all of that, this is the book for them. But... Uh, but no, that was just such a beautiful spot to end on. And I think you're absolutely right. So Jed, thank you for coming on. It's been a wonderful chat. We could keep going, but I'm going to stop, but we, it's been wonderful. Um, anything you want? I mean, you're not on Twitter, you know, so there's no point promoting that. You mentioned the book, anything else you want to draw people's attention to? You got any courses you're teaching? You want you know, people can enroll in <laughs> someone who's, who's currently wondering what scrambling for courses in semester one at Sydney university who could, uh, you could find something to do? I, well, listen, I, I work on a very prosaic unit called um, Introduction to Academic Writing, and I try and do the opposite of that, which is I try and introduce people to writing for writing's sake. Mm. Um, but so, you know, if, if there are any <laughs> students out there, you're welcome. <laughs> what will likely happen um, in time is that we will talk again, and I will say to you, there are, there is this conference that we're starting. There is this um, network that we're beginning. Um, this is the year for me of, of beginning things. Um, and, it's, and it will feel very much that way because, as I said, <laughs> you know, we're having a baby. So that's going to be the, new, the start of something new. But, yeah, I think rather than um, talk, about, talk about what might happen, uh, it, would be, it would be wonderful to come back one day and talk about what is happening. And I think that's kind of the, the beauty and the, the challenge of this kind of work is usually the people that you talk to who, who you love. I think of Brian Stevenson, right, who, who wrote Just Mercy that got turned into that mm. film. And I listen to him and I just think I want to be him. And then I think he's, he's in his 50s and he's done this for the last 25 years. 
And, and I, I, yeah, that's not often that we get to kind of imagine ourselves that far into the future and who knows, who knows what may be coming. Um, but I, I'd like to think that I can do this for a long time and, and earn some credibility for now. I can just be the idealist. And then the next time <laughs> that you talk to me, um, I can, I can talk about what's really going on. And mm. so, you know, if people want to stay in touch, I'm being pressured and encouraged and gently nudged towards Twitter. And maybe that's something that I should do. Um, but for now that, that book, that book that we mentioned um, will come out in spring. So around October as a paperback, I'll do a book launch. I might do a little talk then. Um, but for now I'm putting my head down and, awaiting the arrival of a tiny person mm-hmm. and also heading into prison next week. So, uh, yeah, maybe people can just be mindful of that that's going on and look, please look for opportunities um, to get involved in, you know, restorative justice programs, in, in prison literacy programs. Look at the youth justice centres that are near to you and see if they need people who can go in and volunteer. Look and see where proximate to you there is a correctional services and see if they have programs where they invite people in, invest um, energy and time and money into stuff to do with, you know, in indigenous overrepresentation in prisons, look at just reinvest in, in Redfern if you're a Sydney cider like I am and the work that they're doing. That's the kind of stuff where you go, that's the, that, that groundswell of people who actually think about the reality of incarceration and what we do in this country um, that would be to me that that would be the best thing I could ask people to do. That's a there. There were some very good plugs. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. And yeah, your your dormant Twitter account is about to get a lot of going to get tagged <laughs> when this comes out. But no, that's that's a brilliant um, call to action. I think that thank you for that very much. And we will definitely have you back on. That would be wonderful. So thanks everyone for listening. Uh, you know, see you next week. 